0: topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, integrative dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 181 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we are talking all about food sensitivity and intolerance and whether testing for these is legit or if all those food sensitivity tests that you see coming up are just a fleeting fad. And I know we've seen a huge upswing in people getting tested you know, with at-home testing kits and things like that and asking us about food sensitivity testing and ordering our MRT. So I think it's just a good time for us to cover this topic because there are now just so many options out there and we really don't want you guys to waste your money.
2: Absolutely. And we'll also be unpacking the difference of course of food sensitivity and intolerance as compared to a food allergy, the role of symptoms of a food sensitivity and how that can hinder your overall wellness. But the last time we really did a deep dive on this topic was episode 30, MRT food sensitivity test. And of course, I feel like we cover leaky gut and inflammatory food response or the avoiding of pro-inflammatory foods in the diet on a pretty regular basis. And you know, this really comprises an entire chapter of the anti-anxiety diet. But today we will go into how you can customize your diet, listen to the feedback of your body, where and when you should determine if you should invest in testing and what supplements you can take to support your body's resilience and reduce inflammatory reactions.
1: Yes. So some good stuff coming since it's been over 150 episodes since we've really dug into this. Like oh, my gosh.
2: Three whole years, yes.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we jump in, let's just give some updates on the Solving event that we've got going on in Atlanta, the art of food as medicine.
2: Yes, we are super stoked for a soiree at the art studio at Little Tree Art Studios in the greater Atlanta area. This is going to be a combination of a farm to table dinner that will be catered from a local butcher. We will have dishes from the anti-anxiety diet cookbook, including my cabbage slaw. We have our friends at Cultured South doing a fermentation station and they also will be providing kombucha at the bar, we have mixologists on staff that will be making some fun cocktail blends and elixirs. Uh, what other fun highlights do we have in this event?
1: Well, we've got something along the lines of some adaptogens. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like yet. Um, we'll have a um, CBD company coming out to offer tastes and doing market. a yeah. Um, a live, um, art demo along with that. We'll have a bone brothery with two different blends from bonafide provisions, um, screen printing and other art installations going on throughout the night. So not only things to taste, but also things to like touch and see and make and, and kind of get all senses on
2: board. Yes. So it's like what Becky and I call our annual prom or wedding or whatever it is. Our food is medicine event of the year. So, this is totally worth it if you've been listening to the podcast and you want to meet Becky and I, and you're not coming to KetoCon and you're not going to make it to another speaking event that I'm speaking at. This may be worth it. Uh, You know, I think it's going to be a fun night filled with live music, high vibes delicious food and I will be doing like a 45 minute lecture or so and then we'll also have a panel of all of the local artisans talking about the role that food as medicine plays in their life in their business and really just hands-on application to take you from taste to like Becky said touch to experience to creating forward-thinking goals of, of how to manifest this as a lifestyle
1: Totally. So tickets, you guys are only 40 bucks. They are available over at allymillerrd.com slash events. And that's where you can find all of these details in a written down format and grab your tickets.
2: Awesome. So we will talk all things on food sensitivity or fad, but now also we're going to take a quick word from our opening sponsor, Wild Foods. Super excited to have them back on as sponsors of the Naturally Nourished podcast. I've loved you guys sharing on Instagram and tagging both Allie Miller RD and Wild Foods when you've been purchasing your boxes and getting all sorts of fun things, lots of awesome reviews on the Cocotropic, which for those of you that missed our prior ad, Cocotropic is an elixir that is an incredibly delicious blend of organic chocolate, reishi and chaga mushroom extract, as well as raw maca powder and wild turmeric. So it's a nootropic, or basically a blend of compounds that enhance cognitive function while supporting general relaxation, reducing anxiety, Supporting healthy grounded mood and I've been loving adding this to my coffees and then adding a little bit of fat One of the fats that I've been selecting is the cacao butter from them a great dairy free way to provide antioxidant rich uh, Nutrient density and also kind of ground yourself with that fat-fueled latte so that you have enhanced satiety throughout the day Uh, wild foods as a company provides really food as medicine and these really thoughtful, sustainably sourced products from their wild vanilla, which is hand harvested whole beans ground into a powder. I've been loving working with that because now all my baked goods don't have that kind of alcohol um, taste. And I can bring vanilla into things that are raw where otherwise that wouldn't work. Um, I've been loving, like I said, the cacao wafers. I have been converting all of my matcha into wild matcha. You know, matcha is such a fantastic tool for that L-theanine, which aids in brainwave activity into the alpha wave space for creativity and concentration and focus without agitation and anxiety. And when you sip on matcha, you get 10 glasses equal to the amount of antioxidants that you would see in green tea. So great for metabolic boost, as well as just supporting your overall antioxidant capacity in the body. Uh, and then they have Beyond the Matcha, which is the ground tea leaf in a ceremonial blade uh, blend, excuse me, 10 different tea blends as well as wild mushroom blends. So you can actually use just reishi or you could just go for the cordyceps or whatever mushroom of choice. Their website is so full of education and really helps you to understand how you can use these food as medicine ingredients to enhance whole body health. Uh, so go on over to wildfoods.co.com, wildfoods.co and put an Allie Miller R-D, RD, at checkout, and you will get 12% off your order and, uh, let them know that you heard about them from the Naturally Nourished podcast.
1: Yes. So, so much good stuff. And I think we're planning to, these guys just moved their Austin locations. I think once they're up and running, we're planning to go over and do some kind of a live tasting or something. So stay tuned for that for sure.
2: Yes. Something fun.
1: All right. Let's kick things off today um, and talk first about the distinction uh, between a food sensitivity Or food intolerance we're kind of using those two terms interchangeably and a food allergy because I think people often confuse the two or use these terms interchangeably and and allergy is definitely a, a totally different game so let's explain that a little bit
2: yes so you know food allergies and food sensitivities are on the rise And both food allergies and food sensitivities can drive an inflammatory impact in the body that is unfavorable. So that's where that ends (laughs) as far as the overlap. Uh, So first on food allergies, you know, we've seen an increase of over 50% in American children from the late 90s to present. And today it's estimated one in 13 children and one in 25 adults suffer from a life-threatening food allergy so when we 're looking at an allergy response we 're looking at the immune system producing a antibody um, i g e and this is like a tagging compound of the immune system and this i g e is responding in the con- in response to that Particle crossing the blood gut barrier. And so when someone eats something like a peanut, let's say, and that peanut crosses into the bloodstream, and that could be, as we know now, through topical application, right? Like um, cosmetics, this can cross into the bloodstream through your dermatological tissue, even through reactive airway, if there's a high inhalant, right? That can go into the bloodstream, or most commonly, through the digestive process. And these IgE antibodies initiate a complete cascade of events that are hyperreactive and pretty immediate onset. So this can include like hives in the skin, this can include wheezing in the respiratory tract, so the same areas of contact, right, as well as GI tract issues like vomiting. Now there can even be severe anaphylactic cases and this is where this can become life threatening where an individual is not able to swallow or to breathe and that immediate immediate IgE reaction will need to be treated with you know epinephrine or an EpiPen in that in that setting
1: Got it so food allergy is going to be much more severe and pretty immediate onset
2: Yes absolutely and uh, today's topic. I'm thinking as we're talking, we should probably do another episode because I want to really. Today's episode is mostly actually on food sensitivity, but you know some of the reasons why we see increase of both sensitivity and allergies on the rise in the modernized society is based on a hypersterile environment, right? So both the increase of cesarean birth children, you know, we talk about how that being the, the vaginal canal of birth being the initial thumbprint on the microbiome, and that teaches the immune system to be more diverse. And that kind of provides that microbiome support for the immunoglobulin function. Uh, so that 's a big influence then there's the sterility of increased use of like antibacterial products that are now um, applied in toys and um, really introduced early in age and daycare and such. the use of prescribed antibiotics mm-hmm. right and then even food allergy testing there's a lot of controversy on like the skin graft testing by inducing the antigen of a food particle into the dermatological tissue to impact the blood, does that create potentially a more reactive immune system? Does the higher frequency and volume of vaccines create a higher reactive immune system? There's a lot.
1: <laughs> You've got a whole episode right there. And I, I will say like amongst you know mamas my age, I definitely see a ton of them having to carry EpiPens for their kiddos and and, you know, very early on um, noting food Allergies in them,
2: yes, and and then not to mention the increase of pricing of those epipens, which is just yep. absolutely yep. absurd. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I think we should do one on on um, helping your child to tolerate a known food allergy. But unfortunately, in today's podcast, that's where the buck stops, and I'm going to go into food sensitivities.
1: <laughs> so- notes of all those things. So we will,
2: we'll have you guys covered in a future episode. I won't leave you guys hanging. I promise. Okay, good. So um, yeah, more common than food allergies, which can be life-threatening, as I mentioned, you know, food intolerances can actually affect up to 20% of the population and food intolerances, the big distinguishing variable is they are not going to be IgE mediated right? So these are actually thought by um, influencing other enzyme pathways. This could be based on impaired food absorption. It could be based on the microbiome activity. So we'll talk about the connection of SIBO, for instance, and intolerance of FODMAPs, right? Um, And then there can be other GI digestive-related issues or even medication induction that can interfere with digestive process. And, you know, in many cases, there may be an immunoglobulin response. So there can be an antibody tagging response to a sensitivity um, or to a food intolerance. And that could be an IgG, but we'll we'll cover that a little bit further. But the big thing to distinguish is that it's not IgE, immediate hypersensitivity, and um it can be immune-mediated, but likely has other digestive and um, other enzyme-related influencing factors.
1: Got it. So for a sensitivity or intolerance, you're talking likely much less severe, not an immediate onset. And we'll get into that in a moment here of how long it can actually take from actual exposure. And sometimes it's even based on the amount of a food that you consume. Yes.
2: Yes. Like that buildup of that dam that I always explain with the MRT. So make me do that.
1: (laughs) Okay, good. Um, Yeah. I think that's super, super helpful to break out that distinction and and just kind of make sure that that we're using the correct terms when we are talking. Like I have clients all the time who are like, oh my God, I'm allergic to so many things with their MRT. And I'm like, well, you're not. So don't go into like a restaurant and say that you're allergic to all 15 things that came up on here because they're going to like throw you out. Um, Yes. Yes. But but good to have that language. Um, so how about just some kind of general things that can cause us to have a food sensitivity or intolerance?
2: So the first thing is really not having the enzymes to break down a food. So we have enzymes that help to break down our Um, proteins carbohydrates and fats and there's unique different enzyme substrates right and we make digestive enzymes right away actually in more of a cephalic response from even thinking about food remember Pavlov's dog and the ringing the bell and the salivating when the bell rang in anticipation of eating so we start to make salivary enzymes from even thinking about food but definitely once we start uh, introducing food into our mouth and chewing and then there's also enzymes that are produced along the small intestine. And then there's digestive process beyond enzyme, or the pancreas, of course. the pancreas is going to push enzymes out, and that's going to mix in the gastric pouch when we are blending our bile for our digestive process in that cauldron of hydrochloric acid. Um, so we can also look at bile or lack thereof, or you know gallbladder stagnation or gallbladder removal as a, a driver of food intolerance or sensitivity as well as low hydrochloric acid. So this could be based on an individual that's using a proton pump inhibitor like Nexium or Protonix or um, has known hypochlorhydria or too low of stomach acidity or is using Tums or something else over the counter to buffer their acidity. This could also be in an individual that's over drinking water and diluting their enzymes and their hydrochloric acid. And then remember that when we're not in a parasympathetic state, when we're in chronic fight or flight mode, we are not producing the amount of digestive enzymes that we would produce in a relaxed environment. That's why parasympathetic state was called rest and digest. You actually only make about a quarter of the amount of the digestive enzymes that you would in a sympathetic. Uh, Excuse me, in a parasympathetic place that you do in a sympathetic stressed environment. So, stress medications, and then, you know, that enzyme production itself is a big piece. And that's just one element. Then we can look at gut integrity. So, an individual that has. Leaky gut, um, which could be driven by use of birth control and said drugs. Also, stress can exacerbate leaky gut. Um, We have an episode on the podcast, episode 137, all about the gut. Great resource, you know, about the reasons and drivers of leaky gut. Antibiotics, a big contributor as well. Um, But if the gut lining is damaged, that means that larger food particles basically are getting into the bloodstream, and that's going to create higher inflammatory response than a tight gut junction or healthy gut lining would have. So if that's paired leaky gut with lack of enzymes, um, either from stress or one of those other intervention um, issues, then you're having larger than desired particles that were not broken down by the digestive enzymes, were not activated, and now they're passing through the gut blood barrier, creating havoc in the body.
1: And that's just two of... many reasons. So what about like, um, if there's bacterial or, or yeast overgrowth, I know that can drive us to not tolerate certain foods as well.
2: Absolutely. And then there's within that state of whether we're in a state of dysbiosis, candida overgrowth, or if we're dealing with SIBO, there can be particular foods that, that imbalanced microbiome can flare with. Right, so um, it can both be the overgrowth of imbalanced bacteria not supporting the the digestive process because probiotics actually eat away at our food particles and manufacture nutrients and aid in absorption and um, then when we have dysbiotic environment we're not getting that benefit but we're also seeing more intolerance specific to that imbalance so you know if we think of candida yeast in the diet is going. So if it's like baker's yeast or yeasted foods, that's going to be a big flare. Refined sugars would be a big flare if we're talking about SIBO, we'd be looking more at like FODMAPs. Um, If we're talking, you know, any of those particular compounds, there can be a a dance of what would drive a flare in that, and that'd be further uh, food sensitivity. But then just the fact that that bacteria overgrowth is lining the gut, that's interfering with those tight junctions, which creates more over across the board sensitivity because larger particles, again, crossing into that gut blood barrier.
1: Totally. That makes sense. So if there's an infection that's active in the gut, that kind of turns things up a notch and we may be just more sensitive overall.
2: Yes. And then if there's known inflammatory bowel disease, so if we're talking Mm -hmm. about Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, even celiac disease beyond the celiac individual having that immune mediated autoimmune wheat gluten response, right? We're also seeing in the celiac population them having more gut stress, which means more food sensitivities, even outside of like the gluten mimicking compounds of dairy and so forth. This could just be across the board to even things like spinach or, you know, anything that's eaten on a regular basis to someone that has gut damage or inflammation in the gut. They're prone towards that sensitivity as well.
1: Sure. Um, And then histamine intolerance. I know that kind of can go in conjunction with the dysbiosis piece of the puzzle. And we have a podcast coming for you guys in a couple of episodes, um, all about histamine intolerance, but any, any last words on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, that would be just the big thing is often a big thing we see with histamine intolerance is dysbiosis. People with, um, you know, histamine intolerance can't tolerate live probiotics often. Uh, but yes, we have Dr. Becky Campbell coming on in a couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll leave that up to her to unpack as a, a full deep dive on that topic.
1: All right. Awesome. So there can be a lot of reasons for having a food sensitivity and oftentimes individuals have more than one of these reasons and it's kind of a, a layering effect yes. or impact for sure. Uh, but all this to say is food sensitivity is a real thing. Um, we see it very, very commonly and you know, increasingly, I think commonly um, nowadays. And it um, one thing to note is that may not be Necessarily a forever thing, which I think gives a lot of hope and there's a lot that we can do um, in you know the majority of, of the cases that we mentioned to support the body, take away whatever the intolerance is for a period of time, and really work to correct things kind of upstream. but we'll get there. Um, let's talk first, I think, about maybe some of the common symptoms or how you would know that you have a food sensitivity.
2: Yeah. So, and absolutely, it is. It's if, if the house is broken, <laughs> if the foundation of the house is not, um, you know, in proper condition, there's going to be higher susceptibility to everything. So, you know, we'll talk about how you have to address really the root cause of optimizing the digestive chemistry, optimizing the gut tissue and then as you rebuild the foundation your body's more resilient but, but that requires an elimination period as well so um, when we're dealing with food sensitivity or um, we are dealing with um, digestive distress related to food reactions that are not necessarily a food allergy we can see abdominal pain and bloating um, some people will actually call it like a food baby Um, And this can be because we're having an osmotic immune-mediated response. So if you eat something, um, let's say that your body is reacting to, I'm trying to find something neutral. Um, Let's say your body's reacting to carrot and you have a uh, food sensitivity to carrot and it's pretty severe. Well, when you eat carrot, you might get distension and bloating, which could be osmotic or water mediated. And basically the immune system right away, when that starts to cross into the blood uh, gut barrier, the immune system says, we don't like that high alert, let's throw inflammation in this area. So you can get cramping, you can get pain, you can get truly such severe distension that it feels like a food baby. People have said that before, right? Where there's multiple inches of distension, and then that also osmotic could interfere with the bowel regularity where you could have bowel urgency and loose stool diarrhea, where the immune system is like, do whatever you can to get rid of that. And as we upregulate those inflammatory cascade chemicals, that can create a loose stool. Also with an inflammatory response, we can see constipation um, where motility is hindered. And so constipation or diarrhea, IBS, is often tied to food sensitivity we can see acid reflux and heartburn um, as well as dyspepsia like belching Uh, we can see migraines and we can see other inflammatory conditions in the neuromuscular system like uh, we see fibromyalgia um, and even neurological conditions a big influence of outcomes with uh, really doing an elimination diet protocol and pulling out these inflammatory foods we can see on the neurological side of things also mood, and that's why with the anti-anxiety diet, I make that connection of anxiety and depression tied to inflammatory food response, because a lot of these compounds can interfere with the inflammatory status of our central nervous system which then can interfere with how we process neurotransmitters. So our thoughts, our um, cognition, we can be experiencing brain fog, difficulty concentrating. Uh, We see a lot of clinical outcomes with early um, use of an elimination diet with the ADHD population from food sensitivity. And that can even drive things like chronic fatigue syndrome or just a generalized state of inflammation. And uh, I would say the final ones I haven't called out would be autoimmune conditions. We know there's such an association of the gut associated lymphatic tissue and the inflammatory response in the body with autoimmune activity. And if you think of that, the immune system, if it's like a surveillance system and the immune system is distracted or upregulated or angered by common consumed foods, like again, carrot or whatever, um, you know, that that's creating these inflammatory cascades that could be driving your autoimmune activity. So definitely a high priority to... Look into pinpointing what's driving if you're dealing with an autoimmune condition and um, not seeing clinical outcomes with your current diet approach.
1: Totally. And I think what's important to note here is that um, food sensitivity reactions can be really dynamic. And obviously, that was a very broad list that Allie just covered. So there can be overlap of these symptoms. Maybe you get them with a certain amount of food. Let's just talk about that a little bit, like both the um, delayed onset and kind of that, um, dam effect, if you will.
2: Yeah. So, you know, food sensitivities can be super tricky because they can be 48 to 72 hours Uh, later of a reaction from the consumption. And everyone can have an upper tolerance of the ingredient and these food sensitivities or reactions can compound. So, you know, when I'm looking at someone's panel from an MRT test, and we'll talk about testing in a little bit, um, when I'm looking at someone's panel, they might have a red severe reaction to let's say carrot and pork um, and so if they eat pork breakfast sausage um, and or had a couple slices of bacon um, or pork tenderloin in that day and they had roasted carrots somewhere within that day, that could be more of an earlier kind of dumping of the bucket, if you will, where maybe they'll get a, a, a big flare that night, they'll deal with insomnia, they'll wake up and have three spells of diarrhea and you know, then the next day is lethargy fatigue day, whatnot um and then they may not have known that that was the carrot or the pork and they continue to consume then we start to get kind of mucky data we can see the same thing with like moderate reactions which maybe aren't as much of a light switch um where an individual might have a moderate reaction to uh let's say garlic or let's say kale or you know same type of ingredient carrot or pork they may be able to have two moderate reactions a day without having a flare But if for three days in a row, they're having two to three or three to four, it kind of depends on the volume, right? And the presence and that individual, that might be enough to spill over that bucket into a flare. Whereas they're able to navigate having one to two a day on a daily basis without having a symptom flare.
1: Totally. That makes sense. So it may be like one thing isn't your total kryptonite if you have it in small amounts, but I've had clients who are like, oh, pizza is my thing. And we get their food sensitivity, um, test back and sure enough, it's like, oh, it wasn't just like the tomato sauce that was on that pizza that had you in the bathroom all night. It was also, you know, the type of cheese that was on it. Plus tomato was reactive. Plus you were sensitive to wheat and XYZ other toppings. So it's this compounding impact.
2: Right. And it might be something where like oregano is a red dynamic reaction and those other reactions are moderate or yellow. So that's where that same individual might be able to have wheat in the form of a croissant and they might say, oh, well, that's, I don't know why I can have gluten sometimes, you know, so maybe it's not the gluten one. That's the loud reaction. It's the oregano. So it's when you pair Italian food into the mix that you get that dynamic flair. And again, that's kind of that compounding influence.
1: Totally. Um, so yeah, we'll get into individual testing shortly because I'm sure people are already wondering like, how do I know if it's the oregano or if it's the tomato or, or what is it? Um, but let's just talk about some, I guess, foods and food groups that we commonly see sensitivity or intolerance to.
2: Yeah. So the first one I would have to start with would be gluten. And there's just such an influx that we're seeing of non-celiac gluten sensitivity Um, So, you know, this is very different than celiac disease. Celiac disease is an autoimmune condition um, and celiac disease is is characterized, excuse me, by that gliadin compound in the gluten actually attacking the GI tract. Um, And so, you know, there is an influence of celiac disease on the rise as well, but that's really only about one to 5% of Americans. Now, when we look at the non-celiac gluten sensitivity, we're talking about a pretty big influence on the population. Um, We're seeing that in the non-celiac that we can see an influence on one and up to 20 Americans. And this can impact brain function, skin, endocrine systems, so your hormone and your thyroid. The thyroid is the big tie there. Um, as well as our uh, liver, our blood vessels, and so much more. There's a lot of clinical research, and Becky will share some in the show notes, specific to the influx of the non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And one of the thoughts behind this is the shift in gluten itself and the types of wheat crops that have been introduced into america and i talk about this a lot in an episode i don't have the number down but we'll put it in the show notes um because of the anti-anxiety diet um it's one of the big uh nutrients that i demonize or pull out as my one of five pro-inflammatory foods and um, when short dwarf wheat Uh, which came out around World War II, um, when that hit the market for daily consumption, um, and then that about a decade later was paired with eat eight to 11 servings of grains, whole grains, which were denser in vital wheat gluten, right? Um, This is when we really started to see a high influx of the gluten sensitivity. And, um, you know, there's just such a higher concentrate of gliadin, the inflammatory protein in this modernized wheat that we're using, and it was truly developed to be an obesogenic crop. So this was developed to be a weight gaining crop so that we could have a population that would fit the draft weight, and now we're dealing on the totally other end of the spectrum where we're unfortunately too fat to fight. We have such an obesity (laughs) epidemic that people aren't able to get into the army or military based on being overweight and not fit. Um, So definitely it worked as a weight gaining crop. And we also see it working as a pro-inflammatory compound that can interfere with bloating and digestion. We are seeing with gluten consumption, gas, diarrhea, constipation, chronic fatigue, huge impact on um, anxiety. And one of the mechanisms there is that the um, gluten can also cross the blood-brain barrier and interfere with our opioid receptors. So we can see addiction and irritability Um, with gluten consumption. uh, It's actually the gluteomorphin compound, and so it sounds like morphine, right? And that's what crosses the blood-brain barrier and can drive foggy mind, concentration and focus issues. Then we can see a whole world of skin condition. Um, Eczema is so heavily driven with gluten sensitivity. Uh, And then we can see chronic fatigue, joint and muscle pain, as well as upper respiratory drama like asthma.
1: Totally. And um, I'll link in the show notes. I'm not sure if this is the one you're thinking, Allie. We have an episode called, Are You Still Eating Gluten? Um, so I will definitely link that one. That's a good one. And and I believe we did a, an even later one um, related to the anti-anxiety diet where we right. got into some more of those studies. So I'll, I'll dig that up for you guys. I wonder when we're going to um, genetically en- engineer a weight loss uh, form of gluten that yes. <laughs> causes people <Yes>. to... <laughs>
2: To reverse that weight gain is probably not right. happen. And to to be fair, it's it's not a GMO crop, it's right? A genetically right. modified. It is a hybrid crop right. that was a crossbred crop. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I think that th- there's something that has to happen. Yep. <laughs> probably not that. (laughs) Right. Oh my gosh.
1: Um, What about, let's get into maybe FODMAP intolerance, which we alluded to a little bit here and, and kind of call out some of the common foods.
2: Yeah, so this is one that would not be immune-mediated or necessarily inflammatory-mediated, where I would say the gluten sensitivity is highly um, inflammatory-mediated and somewhat immune, as well as that blood-brain barrier mechanism. But with FODMAPs, um, this is an acronym that we use with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. FODMAP looks at the fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So these are basically types of carbohydrates that are going to be found in many foods. Wheat is included as one of the FODMAP, so another mechanism to avoid gluten. Um, but the general construct here is that these are high fructose fruits, These are uh, more resistant, um, prebiotic fiber-based vegetables like asparagus and Brussels sprouts and garlic and onions. And the idea is that the GI tract isn't fully digesting and absorbing these carbohydrates, which then get fermented by excess imbalanced gut bacteria. And that can create variants within fluid regulation in, in the large intestines. You know, we see based on the strains of the SIBO, some are more prone towards diarrhea or more prone towards constipation. Um, and the idea with eliminating FODMAPs is to really kind of starve off this bacterial overgrowth. But with this being said, just like we'll get into it with other elements and mechanisms, you have to also kill off the overgrowth with compounds like our berberine boost, or you know using oregano um, and caprylic acid, maybe um, using also the herbal immune product there, um, Saccharomyces boulardii, and the rebuild spectrum probiotic. So we have to actually reset the bacteria status to then aid in the tolerance of the compounds themselves.
1: Totally. And I'll link to our episode on Candida and SIBO uh, yes. where we get into Fond Maps a little bit. But I can't tell you how commonly I see this where I'm educating a client on maybe like detox supporting foods and start talking about cruciferous veggies. And they're like, oh my God, no, no Brussels, no cauliflower, um, no broccoli, like all causes the same reaction. I'm like, hmm, we need to go deeper on. Your gut bacteria here,
2: yeah, and maybe just starting the Beat the Bloat cleanse because exactly, you know, uh, adhering to a low FODMAP diet can help with upwards of seventy-five percent um, of improvement of symptoms. And I know that this is becoming much more popular with gastroenterologists, which is great in theory. But if we're not resolving, you know, this low FODMAP diet is not going to be optimal to support detoxification, as you mentioned, you know, it's not going to provide that microbiome diversity that we want to get the beneficial bacteria species. So it's more of a coping mechanism and it does not create flare or overgrowth of the imbalance, but it does not necessarily resolve. And the goal would be resolution. So then you can reintroduce.
1: Got it. So totally best done in tandem with something like beat the bloat. And then you could ideally be able to bring in, you know, small amounts of those foods and, and test them and um, see how you respond a little bit later on down the road.
2: Yeah. And that'd be a great way to, to be a testament to the, the success of the cleanse, you know, totally. like re-tolerance to introducing these things. Absolutely. Yep.
1: yep. Um, and then what about lactose? Because I think that's a really big one that's very common as well.
2: Yeah. So lactose is more focused on that uh, enzyme reduction, um, which can, you know, we see that certain populations based based on ethnicity have less of the lactase enzyme. Um, we also see by age, this reduces. So this is where in the elderly, we see more lactose intolerance. Um, in general, it's about 65% of the world's population. You know, literally, these are billions of people that are going to be lactose intolerant. And um, it's, that's all it is it's base of the reduction of lactase enzyme and so if we don't have ample lactase to combat the lactose consumption that lactose is going to create GI distress and we're not um, breaking it down so we're not uh, digesting it
1: totally and those individuals would be good candidates um, for something like digested if they are choosing to consume products that still contain lactose
2: Yeah, I mean, digestate would be a great thing for all of these populations because (laughs) it makes every food more digestible. It has that synergy of the compounds to break down carbs, proteins, and fats. It provides you those enzymes that, again, are going to be suppressed in a stressed environment. And how many of us are not stressed these days? Um, and then it also provides us that hydrochloric acid to optimize the stomach acidity. It provides the ox bile, if you have any of that gallbladder issue, to aid in emulsifying and gathering your optimal stool formation. So yeah, I mean, digested would be probably one of three of the top interventions based on food sensitivity, for sure.
1: Totally. And I'll link for those of you interested or suspecting or or with a known lactose intolerance. We did an episode a while back on the pros and cons of dairy, where we get into certain forms of dairy that might be a little bit more supportive or might work better for you across the board and things like that.
2: Yep. And in the anti-anxiety diet, when I pull out dairy, I really nerd out more on the casein, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is again, that same mechanism of action of the gliadin, the gliado, um, the influence of gluten crossing the blood brain barrier, casein crosses the blood brain barrier. And um, that's the more inflammatory protein as is, but that's the one that can also have opioid interference with the brain and mood. And casein, that's where we talk about, yes, in that episode, A1 versus A2. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to be said on different genetics of cows and the output of their milk, uh, which types of milk have been consumed for thousands of years, and, and which is kind of the newer, more, quote unquote, again, hybridized version of, if it's not a crop, I guess, of an output from an animal um, that may be increasing the sensitivity.
1: Okay. And, and while we're on this topic of lactose intolerance, it's not totally related, but I'm going to ask anyway. <laughs> I just need to know. Um, what are your thoughts, Allie, on oat milk? I totally have my conspiracy theories and opinions, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about the recent surge of oat milk out there.
2: Um, I think it is processed carbohydrate water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm really disappointed with, with the in, influx of mil, oat milk, excuse me. Um, all, you know, I've talked about this before, about all nut milks in general, m- most of the time we're paying for fortified wa- water and the fortification is a synthetic vitamin that's being used, which I'm not a fan of that. Um, and then all of these um, milk analogs, generally speaking, are often going to have additives and binders, and there's good, better, best binder choices. But you know, we're, we're talking from carrageenan to guar gum to gel and gum and so forth. Um, there are some cleaner nut milk brands out there now. Like I love malk for those people that are have a dairy protein allergy or are not able to tolerate dairy with success. Um, you know, they might uh, be a, a good candidate for malk which is actually a texas-based nut milk company which only uses like sprouted almonds water and himalayan salt so they actually add enough of the concentration of the nuts themselves to actually have that fantastic mouth feel and to actually um, create a quality product that isn't as processed but there's not such a thing yet on the market with oat milk and oats themselves <laughs> um you know there's some definitely redeeming properties to oats um and uh i'm thinking of the Influence as like a nervine, right? So Avena sativa is the herbal name for oat pod and um, Oats can be nervine's they can be calming for the body But when we're talking about oat milk We're talking about just generally speaking rolled oats many of them not certified organic so likely high in glyphosate um, and you know, that's that chemical that is uh, seen as a neurotoxin from exposure of Roundup as a spray Uh, so we can see high amounts of glyphosate we can see synthetic enrichment we can see undesired binders and fillers and the nutrition you're getting is not optimal and you know oat milk can be from 18 to 24 grams of carb per cup and that could even be in an unsweetened Mm. (laughs) oat milk especially if you're using this like in your latte or your matcha and then you're going to add a sweetener to that you could very easily be sitting with three to four cups of bread excuse me, three to four slices of bread worth of carbs in a cup of oat milk, um, latte. So likely not a good choice. Yeah. No,
1: thanks. Um, I've tried it once, not a fan
2: and no protein (laughs) and and very low fat. No, you know, when we're talking about cow's milk, we're getting a superior balance of macronutrients, especially a Whole, you know, uh, non-homogenized, or even better, if it's a raw cow's milk, um, then we're going to get all of those immunoglobulins. We're going to get the conjugated linoleic acids, um, which can help with uh, your insulin response. That can also help with fighting against cancer, boosting lean body mass. And you're getting only 12 grams of carb per cup with 8 grams of protein. You know, much better than 24 grams of carb with two grams of protein.
1: Totally. And
2: no yep. health supporting effects,
1: uh-uh. Uh-uh. potentially damaging additives and things like that. So I think yes. skip it guys. <laughs>
2: yes. So let's take a moment before we go into, um, the last foods to remove for food sensitivities and talk about a product that we do love. And we do incorporate in our fat field lattes Yes. their food. <laughs> Yes, so speaking
1: of something that would be a beneficial addition to your matcha latte or your coffee beverage, further food products are the highest quality collagen, gelatin, and health tonic foods. We love that their collagen and gelatin are grass fed. Mm-hmm pasture-raised, or wild-caught in the case of their cod collagen for those who might have an intolerance to beef. Speaking of intolerances today, non-GMO, hormone-free, and antibiotic-free. And these guys really do their due diligence to connect with leaders in the community, whether it's functional medicine doctors RDs like ourselves and other health heroes, and they really strive to uh, allow these people to influence product formulation and share their expertise. They're always sharing really great recipes of how to work their products in um, on their blog or at furtherfood.com.
2: Yes. So both Becky and I use daily one of the further food products, whether it's collagen in our daily latte or matcha, or whether I am using their mindful matcha powder, which also has a blend of adaptogens in there, or whether I'm using gelatin in my avocado breakfast pudding, or um, all of the fun recipes, even my low carb chocolate chip cookies in the anti-anxiety diet uh, cookbook uses gelatin in there as well. And collagen and gelatin are just so important. Important for our connective tissue. Uh, We have seen such fantastic research on the role of adding collagen into the diet to support against cellulite to aid in skin turgidity and elasticity to support hair, skin, and nails, as well as supporting our vascular function, our digestive tract, serving to reduce food sensitivity, right? Because actually collagen and gelatin can coat and protect that gut lining. And gelatin being a more oopy-goopy delivery can really aid in sealing the gut from that leaky gut food sensitivity space. Um, so these can be therapeutic foods to add in to reduce food sensitivity. And, um, you can go on over to furtherfood.com and you can use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout that will give you savings on your first order and let them know that you heard about us, um, or about them through us, the Naturally Nourished podcast. So going over to furtherfood.com and use the code AllieMillerRD.
1: Awesome. All right. So we've covered gluten, we've covered FODMAPs, we've covered dairy. Um, Let's also just cover some additional items that you remove for the anti-anxiety diet, a little bit around the why behind these, and maybe um, just kind of the incidents that you clinically see people having sensitivities to some of these foods as well.
2: Yes. So corn is huge. I think corn sensitivity, although not discussed as much as gluten sensitivity, is on the rise on high amounts. I can't say equally, but I think significant. When I look at my clinical population of thousands of clients, I see corn in at least 80% of them as a food sensitivity. And I personally experience it myself. Uh, You know, there could be a couple mechanisms there. Now, corn is a highly genetically modified crop uh, as is soy and that's my second one that I'm gonna mention Um, so that could be some of the influencing factor it could be because of the glyphosate residue from corn being you know one of those uh, those roundup ready GMO crops Um, and then it can also be the omega-6 structure to corn be that it's higher in a pro-inflammatory fat Um, but I remove it from the anti-anxiety diet because of that GMO and that presence of neurotoxin not supporting our neurological health. And I have seen that to be a big one. And maybe that is a big influence in individuals that transitioned to a gluten-free diet, saw some beneficial outcomes, but did not go through that repairing the gut lining or enzyme support, just kind of like the scenario with FODMAP, right? It's like you remove one food sensitivity, so then you bring in higher amounts of corn, which is seen in like gluten-free pizza crusts and gluten-free pastas and all of these processed GF products. And now since that foundation of the gut was not repaired, now you're starting to have an inflammatory sensitivity to that compound.
1: Totally. It's like a a little whack-a-mole game Mm -hmm. if you don't Mm -hmm. address the root issue.
2: Absolutely. And so soy is another one that I demonize also because 93% of it is genetically modified, high amounts of residue from those insecticides. And um, also, we're worried about soy as being an omega 6. Um, so that's one that I'd pull out there. And then there are a lot of anti-nutrients in soy, um, be that it's a legume, higher amount of uh, lectin in that. Um, so definitely not a fan of using soy as a primary protein um, because it's just not very very bioavailable. And then there's the estrogenic impact that um, I'm not a big fan of, of course. And then finally would be, yes, sugar. Um, as I mentioned, sugar can be a sensitivity that can influence the dysbiosis for sure, so there's that connection. Uh, We also know though that sugar alcohols are not absorbed and that that can cause a lot of GI distress. So, um, you know, any of those from erythritol, which is a corn-derived sugar alcohol, kind of a double dip there, um, all the way into any of the all, so sorbitol, malitol, a lot of these can be poorly um, absorbed and actually can pass through the urine in a completely undisturbed, no molecular change. <laughs> so that can create a lot of osmotic or fluid shifts in the body. And that can also disrupt the microbiome or our gut bacteria, driving potentially more over or across the board sensitivity.
1: Totally. So I think clinically when, when I run an MRT, I expect to see one or two, if not all of the items that you've mentioned. Um, especially in myself, I've seen like corn and soy come up as reds and dairy and I think wheat as a yellow. Um, so super, super common when we are actually doing testing beyond just, you know, um, hearing about symptoms from clients
2: absolutely and before we go just into testing i think just sharing as a a personal story i've always had wheat as like a moderate reaction and um i so it was like a yellow a moderate reaction in the mrt and maybe even one test it it showed up negative as non-reactive at all because i wasn't eating a lot of it um but after i had stella so stella was emergency c-section so i was on iv antibiotics Um, you know, very sterile surgical procedure in my uterus, which is very connected to the tissue that's right next door to your intestines, right? And then um, it was a very high stress period of time. And um, I was on morphine during that time. You know, there are a lot of drug, iatrogenic complications, if you will. Um, But anyway, I had gluten following um, Stella. Uh, Brady got pizza one night and I just was like, whatever, I'm going to eat it And I felt like I was being stabbed. I'm not kidding, I I would have gone to the emergency room if I didn't know that it was a gluten-related reaction. And when I did my following MRT, it showed up as red. And so it was not likely the influx of that one exposure of the gluten that made that a red response. It was the environmental change of the integrity of my gut of the sterility and the stress to my microbiome, and the nutrient deficient state from being postpartum, that created that increased reaction.
1: And I think that's a great example because I, I remember you saying it was like being like scraped with a, a scalpel. I remember that yes. like visual. I'm like, oh my gosh! Um, but I think that's a great example of how you know, like a lot of other things we talk about, like you know, nutrient demand in the body and things like that. This can change. Food sensitivities can change and, and shift based on season, based on demand. Generally, with avoidance, um, we see them, and and you know targeted supplementation and support for the gut. Generally, we see them improving or or even going away potentially. Um, but we can also see the reverse when we are you know under stress and have a big hit to our body. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk testing because I think we've teased it long enough. Um, and I think this is an area that gets confusing really, really quickly. Um, I've now seen the Everly Well, I think it was home test kit actually sold at like Target and stores yes. like that. Um, and I just want to question whether there's any validity um, to some of the kind of over-the-counter direct-to-consumer Um, tests like Everly Well or the Pinner test or two that I've commonly seen clients coming to me with like, oh, I already did food sensitivity testing. Here's my results. And I I kind of cringe because I'm like, oh, you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. But um, are these tests legit or are they a total waste of money?
2: So all of the tests, Everly Well, uh, Pinner test, and then uh, Cash Labs uh, types of tests are going to use an IgG antibody response. So they're really only looking at about 25% of the reactions that are within an inflammatory food sensitivity response. And we'll unpack the other things to look at in a moment. But that's one thing to understand. They're looking at one mechanism. And IgG itself has a high correlation of a false positive. The IgG tagging or quote unquote reaction may be just a neutralized tagging of your immune system and does not designate an inflammatory response or an unfavorable symptom. So it's really important to understand that. Um, so you could be eating almonds every day and you get an IgG increased reaction to almonds, and that may be your immune system simply just saying, hello, almond, there you are again. Um, So it could be a tagging that is neutral, not necessarily a inflammatory negative response for the body. And all of the at-home panels test only IgG. In fact, most physicians, if you ask a doctor to run a food sensitivity panel, they will either run just an IgE, which is again, that immediate hypersensitivity allergy, or they will run an IgE and an IgG panel. Again, both of them are looking at components that are not going to be big picture on an inflammatory food response.
1: Totally, and and most of these tests are also blood spot, which is only a small sample, which makes me question the validity even further. Um, But I think, yeah, I, I hate to say it, and I hate when I have this in front of me, and I'm like, well, we're gonna do the MRT anyway. um, But you know, with these tests, like it's kind of like if you throw a bunch of darts at a dartboard, like something's going to land, something's going to stick, right? So you may get a couple things that if you remove everything that was reactive, you might see some shift and change in symptoms, but you're likely not going to see that ongoing resolution.
2: Yeah, I think the outcomes that you'll get from any of those at-home tests are going to be as comparable of doing just an elimination diet and just being conscious with your food journaling. So, if you're dealing with an autoimmune condition, or if you're dealing with a significant IBS or an inflammatory bowel disease, uh, you know, or dealing with severe mood bipolar mental illness, these are times to really invest in a. Tried and true scientific method like the MRT test, and the MRT test is what I've been running in clinic now for over a decade, and it is highly superior as a food sensitivity test because it looks at it actually does take into account the ELISA IgE, excuse me, the the ELISA IgG component of you know food sensitivity. That's that type three immune complex mediated component which again is only 25 percent of reactions but the mrt test which is unique will also look at the type 4 pathways which are actually about 75 percent or much more common when we look at our food sensitivity response and these are the delayed cell mediated inflammatory responses that are regulated by our t lymphocytes rather than antibodies. So it's not an antigen tagging. They're actually looking at the inflammatory cascade of your cytokines, your prostaglandins, your interleukins. So we're looking at the cannonball and the actual chemical warfare which looks at more of the results or what drives the true reaction in the body, we're actually looking at the reactivity of these foods and chemicals. It's also going to be much more robust in the amount of compounds that are tested. You know, most of these at-home tests are about 90 something, like 96 seems to be kind of the popular number or 105 or something like that. Well, the MRT test looks at 170 foods and chemicals, um, and then it measures again, the release of these pro-inflammatory compounds. Actually, what is the battle that occurs in your body when this compound crosses the blood uh, gut barrier? And they induce, they take two large vials of blood, and then they induce these antigens into your blood, which is another thing to consider, and an important note to say, because you don't have to be consuming the food to ensure that you get accurate results. When we look at the MRT test, they segregate the blood, they induce those compounds, and they look at the chemical release of the inflammatory response of your immune system, your immune regulating system, and inflammatory army in response to that compound. So if you're looking at like a celiac panel, for instance, and you have not consumed gluten, For over six months, you could get a false negative for celiac disease because they're actually looking at the tissue transglutaminase. They're actually looking at the IgG and some of these antibody tagging responses or that enzyme activity, again, that requires exposure to gluten. In the MRT test, when we're looking at the inflammatory response, we don't have to worry about that false negative.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that's something when I'm going over these tests with clients, often they'll be like, "Um, I've never eaten mung bean in my life. I don't know what it is. And I'm like, well, it's don't start, don't start. <laughs> um, but it's independent of whether you've consumed it or not. And I think that provides a lot of reassurance too. Um, and I would call out, I'd say like the chemical section in the MRT is another piece I think you mentioned uh, that makes it very unique because a lot of the tests on the markets are looking specific to foods. And I think it is important, you know, even as we strive to eat a chemical free diet and, you know, make sure that our diet is free of additives and preservatives and food dyes and things like that. A lot of times when I get these tests back, I will go over, you know, labels with clients of of common products, even stuff they're putting on topically. and, And it's like, You're still getting chronic daily exposure if it's in your toothpaste or, you know, going on your skin and stuff like that. So I think that helps to clean up both diet and even extending to the household as well.
2: Yes, and what I love about the empowerment we get from that gp I call it the GPS of the body, truly, yes. right the MRT <laughs> test because you get a green yellow red you know type of response, and the length of the bar again is is based on the level of inflammatory chemical response unique to your body from that food or chemical. And um, this is what kind of goes back full circle to like that dam scenario, right? If you think of like dumping a a certain amount of volume for a high reaction, a less amount of volume for a moderate, and still some level of a reaction on the upper end of the non-reactive, right? You can create this buildup and this constant overspill. And so we are looking at things that fall beyond the constructs of, you know, there could be something that's, for instance, AIP approved, autoimmune protocol approved, or FODMAP approved, or gluten-free, like I mentioned with the corn scenario, right? Where again, your own unique immune system is going to determine friend or foe. And so this really provides you a way to ring out with confidence those inflammatory foods and chemicals so you can clear the dam, you can take out the buildup, repair the gut lining, And then you can strategically figure out what your tolerance of those desired foods are and at what types of influencing factors you have to vary. So for instance, we've heard time and time again that Certain um, people can consume a more liberalized diet approach when they're on vacation because they're thriving in this parasympathetic space, right? They're making more digestive enzymes. Their gut integrity is not in a stressed status. Um, And so there's going to be modifiable variables once you can get into resetting the gut function. And that can be really empowering. And that's the goal is to not feel victimized of, I can't eat xyz but looking at this and saying i am going to be able to rebuild this system so that i can experience more autonomy and freedom
1: totally 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 um let's give a little bit on just how we would once we have someone's mrt results in front of us and if this is all not anchoring for you guys, you can go over to AllieMillerRD.com slash MRT and see a sample panel that might be helpful for um, distinguishing like the the green, yellow, and red mean. But um, let's get into like how we apply the actual results once we have them and how we essentially use this as our leaky gut protocol. So what other um, things would we be doing during this time? What are some supplements that we'd be bringing in?
2: Yes. So this comes into the kind of functional medicine 3R approach that I was trained on back in the day. And it's just there. kind of continued to evolve. They're now um, up
1: to like five or six Rs, I think. But yeah, 3 it, it we still cover everything in the three.
2: Yeah. They just, <laughs> right. They do like re inoculate yeah, and we include yeah. within restore both re inoculation and yeah. You know,
1: yeah. Flat-out. Less to remember. <laughs>
2: yes. So it goes into really removing the irritant, restoring optimal digestion, and then repairing the integrity and gut lining, the tissue of the gut, right? So if we're talking about removing the irritant, it's important to identify that this would include... Removing those food and chemical reactions from the diet, right? Or like Becky said, from cosmetics, from anything that you're topically applying or, or really exposing your body to on a basis, daily basis. So removing those exposures. And then there's also within this, this would be another R probably, um, the biological component, which would be removing the overgrowth of candida, you know, again, removing the SIBO if you're dealing with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, potentially uh, looking at dysbiosis. So the remove would be both the not eating, consuming, or exposing, as well as the eradicating or cleansing. And so in that first R, we might be going into the beat the blow cleanse, which is going to Incorporate antifungal, antibacterial compounds to really plow the gut. Um, and, you know, if we are not concerned about gut imbalance, then we would ensure that we're taking right away a probiotic to support optimal, healthy intestinal barrier function. As well as I mentioned, probiotics help us to break down and absorb nutrients as well as produce nutrients in the colon. So, consumption of probiotics and use of probiotic supplementation can aid in optimizing that digestive environment.
1: Totally. And that's still just the first R. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes. But the second R is really on that same concept towards the tail there of of restore optimal digestive health. So, you know, that's where, again, the probiotic could live in there. Um, We'd also be looking at digestive enzymes here So this would be um, the digestate enzyme. And um, I think I called out that it actually does have lactase in there, but it also has DPP4, which breaks down that casein and um, gliadin, so the inflammatory proteins in gluten and dairy, which is why uh, Becky and I will always travel with digestate. And I always incorporate that when dining out. Because I'm so reactive to gluten that I don't want any cross contamination and I want to really denature anything that I may be exposed to. But then I also have a digestive enzyme capsule at home with my largest meal of the day because that helps me to break down and absorb the nutrients I'm consuming. You know, you could eat the healthiest, you know, kale, super green, raw, excuse me, wild salmon salad that has, you know, olives and, um, you know, maybe some kimchi on there, and you're doing all the things, you got your omega 3s, you got your probiotics, you got your stuff. But if you are in a high stressed environment and you don't have ample digestive enzyme function, you're not going to assimilate or be able to use that nutrition as you would in an optimal digestive state. So, digestive enzymes are really key both to reduce the inflammatory response as well as enhance nutrient status. And with that, the last thing I would think about with restoring optimal digestion is if the individual has a known autoimmune or again, known inflammatory bowel condition, we may even think strategic on a micronutrient level about nutrients that are gonna help the gut function. So we would be looking at things like zinc um, or we would be looking at things like um, you know, vitamin A, we could be looking at things like vitamin K and biotin, um, which are manufactured in the colon. So, looking at nutrients that influence immune and anti-inflammatory support could also be taken into account.
1: Totally, and and that's where in clinic I usually will tack on a micronutrient panel at like week eight to 12 or so, once we really rock in the MRT diet, we've kind of put out that initial fire of distress um, and the gut lining is starting to, you know, heal and seal and, and rebuild. I'll often run that panel if they have, you know, symptoms that make me suspect micronutrient deficiency, just to see like, where, you know, especially if it's been three years that they've had all of this digestive distress or their whole life, um, really where the priorities need to focus, you know, during and, and after this protocol.
2: And I like that spacing out because when we're doing a protocol with an elimination diet, we're removing those really significant inflammatory reactions for six months and we are removing the moderate inflammatory reactions, which are yellow colored in the MRT protocol, at least um, for three months. So, you know, when Becky's waiting until you're well into that third month or, you know, we're eight plus weeks into the protocol, we should start to see, like you mentioned, you know, enhanced um, gut function. We should see less permeability, less leaky gut. And we'll get to that final R in a moment. Um, but, you know, the big picture there is if you were to run the tests at the same time, because a lot of people are eager and they're like, I just want to do all the things. And they often will say, well, A, you're not going to get as much abundance activity because when you're following the beginning of your MRT, you're avoiding potentially 20 plus ingredients, you know? So the ingredient that may support your optimal nutrient status may do better being reintroduced to your body three months from now than it would right now. Right now it could be a stressor to your system and it could actually be something that enhances your system once you've, face lifted your gut (laughs) once your gut is in a new place. And, um, also sensitivities will look much more severe, excuse me. Um, micronutrient deficiencies will look much more severe when the gut isn't optimized, right? So if we're dealing with food sensitivities, not only again, are we getting more inflammation, but we're not absorbing our nutrients. So the food you are eating, you're not getting that bang for your buck to say, well, why am I choline deficient? I eat eggs like 12 to 16 eggs a week. It's like well that could have to do with the fact that your body's hydrochloric acid is low but now that we've been working with digested enzyme for eight weeks that choline might not be as severe of a deficiency sure
1: all right and then last R of repairing the gut so how do we kind of capitalize on all of this work of avoidance and restoring our digestion and make sure that it
2: kind of sticks Yeah, so you're like putting out the fire in the house by removing the lighter fluid from that elimination of the reactions, right? And then you're optimizing the tools that are needed, but you do need to rebuild that house. And the number one nutrient that we think about that we talked about um, with Sharon on the All About Bone Broth podcast is L-glutamine. Glutamine is an amino acid that is literally like a sealant to the gut lining. It serves as both a fuel source and a building block to our enterocytes or our gut cells. And I have seen in follow-up colonoscopies and when working in conjunction with um, GI doctors for my inflammatory bowel disease, that L-glutamine, which is in our um, GI lining support supplement, is an absolute game changer for gut integrity and gut lining health and regrowth. So L-glutamine, and, and it does take a pretty hefty dosage. We're talking about like three grams or 3,000 milligrams as a starting load. Um, so one to two scoops of the GI lining support. And the GI lining support is unique in that it also has synergistic ingredients paired with that potent dosage of L-glutamine. We are adding in mucilaginous, that's my favorite word to say, oopy goopy compounds, and that comes from DGL, or diglycerized licorice root, which has been shown in clinical research to repair ulcerations and tissue damage along the GI tract, Um, great for sealing for gastritis, Um, and then we also have in there aloe, and um, the aloe is also oopy-goopy. You think of putting aloe vera on an arm when you get a sunburn or your shoulder, right? That takes out that inflammation. Um, It also provides this oopy-goopy, mucilaginous, anti-inflammatory coating for that glutamine to be slowly delivered throughout the gastrointestinal lining and tract and that cooling anti-inflammatory effect. So we're getting these building blocks from the L-glutamine to actually heal the gut lining and fuel that tissue recovery. And as far as food forms, we could also layer in bone broth, as I mentioned, that has that collagen and gelatin in there, or collagen and gelatin powder, as we talked about from our friends at Further Food, as great ways to accelerate this process. And that's something we'd prescribe within protocol. And then if we have known inflammatory gut disorder, we would layer in also omega-3 fatty acids and even like my super turmeric, because we've seen curcuminoids in clinical research to also support that inflammatory gut condition. Um, And so there's that gut rehab bundle, um, which includes the super turmeric and the GI lining support. And then that pairs in the targeted strength probiotic. So that really would hit two areas of repair. The targeted strength probiotic would be in that restoring optimal digestion, or that would go in the, you know, bacterial balance, if you will. And then the only thing I'd layer on there would be likely the digest aid as far as like your main foundational needs.
1: Yep. And if you're talking MRT or IBS or just kind of less severe than um, known inflammatory bowel symptoms, we also have the digestive basics bundle that includes the three supplements that we've probably, I don't know if we actually mentioned baseline probiotic yet, but. Um, we did talk probiotics, um, but it includes the digest aid, the GI lining, and then the baseline probiotic, which yes. you could introduce, you know just as your standard ongoing probiotic if there's no suspicion of dysbiosis. Or we've intended that to kind of be also the, the test because that's what's used in our probiotic challenge within that bundle. So a lot of times during the MRTI, I also have individuals doing a probiotic challenge after they've gotten through like the first couple of weeks to assess whether we need to dig deeper and do a cleanse.
2: Yes, or I'll have them if I'm ordering the panel at our first consult yep. in that intro, in between yeah. waiting for that follow-up Because most definitely, friends, as you're listening to this, do not go through the arduous process of elimination diet and white knuckling the removal and changing out your entire pantry and navigating every dining out experience to the level of the detail of black pepper, right? <laughs> Without assessing your microbiome. Because totally. that is going to be a huge influence on your digestive status, bowel regularity, bloating, and likely most of the things that you're thinking you have a food sensitivity problem with.
1: Totally. That makes so much sense. And and yeah, I have seen in clinic where we get like eight weeks in and we're not seeing dynamic results. Like we gotta, we gotta dig deeper. There's something else that's driving that. And and that's where, you know, keeping a food journal, I think, during any type of elimination diet is key because you could start to piece together Um, you know, food families, every activity, or if we're starting to see that it's all FODMAP foods, where it's like yeast and sugar or wine or something like that, we can kind of connect the dots a little bit further. And and that can lead us down this rabbit hole of likely beat the bloat.
2: Most definitely. And like we said, it can never hurt to do that as a proactive housekeeping, if you will, (laughs) to kind of plow the gut because, you know, especially now as we're tailing through the immune time, um, that can only help to create a more vibrant and more resilient microbiome when you kind of repollinate after you plow to push the reset button. Because like I said, you've been wearing your microbiome since your birth state. So it doesn't hurt to do a little bit of dusting and cleaning.
1: Totally. Um, I think we've covered most of our um, supplement and food as medicine recommendations that we build onto that MRT protocol. Anything else you want to call out in that world of things?
2: Let's see. So, um, like I said, you can't rebuild a house that's on fire, so you need to avoid the reactive and inflammatory foods. If you um, aren't wanting to, don't invest in anything but the MRT test would be my recommendation. And if you don't financially want to invest at this time, start with those five foods that I recommend avoiding in the anti-anxiety diet. Um, If you don't have a copy yet, go on over and grab one. It's a great thorough deep dive into how to do so. And then the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook which accompanies it, further reiterates that there's a table with swap-outs of uh, good, better, best product replacements, and all of the recipes in my cookbook and anti-anxiety diet book are dairy free, gluten free, soy free, corn free, and sugar free. So you're gonna get that elimination diet approach at least as a foundation. And then if you think that it's to the level of again, carrot or celery or (laughs) pork, then that's where we definitely would say, I would say next thing would be the microbiome challenge type stuff. Cause again, if we're thinking of cost and investment, and then the third thing, if you're still not getting outcomes, would be then invest in that MRT test. Um, So you'll use that as your kind of guide to eliminate. Um, Ways you can enhance stomach acidity, so breathing and getting into a parasympathetic space at mealtime, this is a really good time to practice mantra and feel, again, empowered with how you're nourishing yourself. So just maybe putting your feet flat on the ground, closing your computer browser, and just saying, I take this moment to be present to nourish, or I'm grateful for nourishment, or, um, you know, uh, I'm taking time to reflect and slow down. I'm taking time to exhale. You could practice that four, seven, eight breath, you know, in that pre-eating time. And that's going to help to get to that parasympathetic space you could play with to enhance your hydrochloric acid and apple cider vinegar shooter in the morning. I talk about that a lot in my detox. That could be a great way to kind of stimulate that bio flow and get the liver going. Um, we would also want to play with probiotic-rich foods. So we've talked about the power of probiotics. Once you've determined if you needed to do a gut cleanse and you know you're, you're established with what probiotic supplement dosage is good for your body, then you could further enhance that biodiversity with probiotic foods. So like sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, all of these can work very favorably. And I think we hit the GI lining supporting foods as far as bone growth, collagen, gelatin. Um, Colostrum is one I didn't mention yet. And um, this is one that can be really fantastic to support immunoglobulin function. You can also get some of that benefit from my grass-fed whey. Um, Because it's non denatured, it is extracted at very low heat, and that grass fed whey will support your immunoglobulin function, um, which means that overall your gut associated lymphatic tissue is less prone towards that reactivity and you're supporting your army of defense.
1: Awesome. I think those are some great layers of of recommendation. And, And so, assuming that we avoid our reactive foods, put out that fire follow the three R's with the MRT. Um, I guess what would be the expected outcome or or what have you seen clinically after, you know, following one of these protocols when you retest like a year down the line?
2: Yeah. So I don't recommend testing any early, retesting any earlier than like eight months. Mm-hmm. The results are quite valid for that full six months of removal. Like I said, three months of the moderate and the six full months of the highly reactive. And once you've crossed past that week 12, when you get into week 13, um, once you're continuing to stay active with the GI lining support of probiotic and digested enzyme then you can start to strategically reintroduce your yellows and most people have a continued reaction to less than 10 to 20 percent of their reactivity preceding that protocol of following these three Rs, right? Um, So we can see reduced overall reactivity and then enhanced confidence of the known reactivity, which we may see that repeat a year later in testing. And that may just be a more serious immunological reaction and we might just need to keep that ingredient out longer. Um, But overall, we tend to see less volume of reactivity overall, Um, where I've seen individuals starting with upwards of seven to nine reds, their second test maybe having one to two reds, and then their third test three years later having only like eight yellow moderates. And then we might even just phase out the annual testing at that juncture. But I've also seen, like I mentioned with the emergency C-section, someone that's cruise control and, you know, went from eight down to two reds and then went through a really gnarly divorce. And the next time they test, they have seven reds. So we have to be mindful that we are dynamic and we are constantly changing and evolving. And we have to support the body based on its demands and, you know, really be mindful about recalibrating when environment, emotion, or nutritional status would be a dynamic time of change.
1: Totally. I've seen kind of both of those scenarios play out in clinic for sure. And, and I will say that, you know, even when I am sitting down with a client who's got like five or more, severe red reactions and it's their daily staples of like coconut and avocado on their perfectly squeaky clean, you know, paleo diet. I think there's, there's often like a moment of mourning and that's usually followed by um, feeling really empowered by just connecting the dots in their bodies and, and really observing how it feels in that initial like first couple of weeks of removing these foods and actually seeing a shift in their symptoms.
2: Yes. I always love reviewing the MRT panel with clients and um, we do so over email if you choose to order it through the website. Um, Becky and I or or I personally would be reviewing your your protocol. And I always mention that to the liking of be empowered when you see things that you're consuming daily because this means you'll get more dynamic response, right? As opposed to that scenario back when you said mung bean, and someone's like, well, I never consume mung bean. You might wanna look in your cosmetics or other additives, but okay, you got that one covered, now let's move on to that coconut. And maybe you remove dairy just because you read an influencer was removing it. And maybe dairy is going to be very therapeutic food to support whole body health. And that's a better option for you than coconut. Um, And so there is this individualized approach. I really encourage all of you to use this information, yes, to, to feel in a victor mentality and empowered by it versus victimized buy it, and know that you're going to get more freedom in the long haul when you work the three-hour protocol and optimize the state of your digestive health and your gut integrity and work to find synergy in that symbiotic environment with your microbiome.
1: Awesome. So head on over to AllieMillerRD.com slash MRT for more details or to order the lab with an email review from Allie or myself. And if you loved today's podcast episode, please head on over to iTunes or your preferred listening platform, leave us a five-star review, and also share on your social media and tag at RD so that we can reshare and send this episode to somebody who may be struggling with food sensitivity or is considering buying one of those cheapo kits to try and stop them. <laughs>
2: Yes. Seek the root. Um, Thanks for listening again, guys. And keep an eye on the Instagram. I'll probably try to put out a promo for the MRT test the week that this airs. Um, It'll probably be like a quick 72-hour flash sale. So keep that on your radar as well.
0: Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at allymillerrd.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Mm -hmm.